0: We are continuing on in Leviticus, obviously, Leviticus 19 um, through 20. It took me a little longer than I thought it would. This idea of moral purity. And again, we're working our way through this chart in essence, so a little bit different division. But we're going to work up for the—soon we'll be in the qualification for priests. And then the feasts and understanding those kind of ending into a call to faithfulness. But we're going to try to finish out uh, 19 through 20 tonight. And uh, John, if you don't mind popping up, I see you signed up for a one-verser, so we'll definitely sign you up again towards the bottom. Uh, but we're diving back in. Remember what we ended with. God has said, be separate, is the idea. You're, you're, you're different than the world. You're to act different than the world. You're to be different than the world. And so keep that in mind as you read some of these different laws of purity purity. And then some of them are unique to that time and understanding what the implication was. But 1919 is kind of a unique one. So if you're looking at this, I put this as an interesting verse. And I've seen this misapplied uh, on the mission field. I was down in Nicaragua. They have a unique dress code uh, built on, I would say, uh, preferences of the past. And this one guy was talking about why they don't wear blue jeans. And I said, Tell me what biblical verse you used for that. And sure enough, they grabbed Leviticus and said, we don't want two types of uh, cloth or two types of things woven together. And I almost said, why don't you look at the tag on your pants right now? Because I'm pretty sure it ain't 100% cotton. Because it looks like it's got some polyester in it. But either way, I didn't do that. Uh, one, I wanted not know how to say polyester in Spanish or cotton. So that's what limited me. But I've heard people grab this verse and twist it. Obviously, if you think about what's done today with all the crosses uh, of animals, I have a miniature golden doodle. Um, I affectionately call her the mini mistake. Um, I'm not a big fan of small dogs. I didn't know that until we bought a small dog. And so if you have a small dog and you love it, great for you. I think they're yappy and they constantly bark at everything under the sun, even when they have a bark collar on. Um, and then you take it off, it barks. And I know sometimes she's doing this to protect me from the pigeons, but most of the time she's just doing it to make me go crazy. So mini mistake, but she's, she's a mini golden doodle. This is a golden retriever bred with a mini poodle times two. And when you do that, so it's an F2 cross. We are breaking the law right here massively in some way, shape, or form. Uh, we got a double dose of poodle shrunk down. So mini dog plus poodle thus the mini-mistake. If you want a hyperallergenic dog, just talk to me afterwards. Not in front of my children, but afterwards. And I'm sure a deal could be struck on this, especially if you need the dog, because it's a therapy dog. So um, it's therapy to me is to make me go insane. But either way, crosses like crazy. Why would you have this? And we have to go back to where we are and remember what we started with. Why do we have this idea of not mixing seed, not mixing cloth, not, not cross-breeding animals? And, and understand what the point was. God is trying and, and, and emphasizing to the nation of Israel a certain point. One, the breeding principles of today uh, weren't in practice then. They were, they, they were too busy to try to mess around, trying to make some uh, designer breed of cow or dog or whatever else. Number two, what has God been saying? He has been saying the whole time, When we think about holiness, what is not natural? And so what he's distinguishing in the first, if you go all the way back, if you look on the graph to the the bottom, the ritual purity, it was all about what was whole or what was natural. And what was whole and natural depicted holiness. So the first thing we look at is this idea of holiness. Holiness. Now, on moral purity, God has been talking about being separate, being a set-apart people. And so he's enforcing that in their everyday thinking. So do not mix with the pagans. And so as an agrarian society, you're running cattle, sheep, goats, sowing crops. This is what you're doing. You're making your own clothes. And God is enforcing in their mind from don't marry pagan people to don't mix your seed, the concept is separation. Every component of their life, and that's what 1919 is, it tells you how specific God was getting, and the point was that they understood the importance of being set apart to Him. One of the applications we can make today, and I think... Maybe would help us. We probably as believers need God to maybe give us some more regulations. He's omnipotent and sovereign, so obviously we don't need it. Um, But we need that point made to us. Be separate. How separate does God want you to be? Read Leviticus 19.19, and then he'll tell you how separate he wants you from the world. Oh, it'll work. It'll be fine. How separate does God want you? Well, when he tells the Israelites not to breed, to cross-breed their cattle, not to mix their seed, not to mix their linen, then you have an idea of how specific God wants you to be in your set-apart nature from the world. We find a thousand reasons why it's not bad. And I'll quote my own mother here. I had to hear it growing up because we would say to her when asked to do something, and she would say no most times, Um, And we would say, what's wrong with it? To which my mother would reply, tell me what's right with it. Now take that application. Works great on kids because they have to listen. Um, Now you're an adult. And what do we typically do when we engage in an activity? What's wrong with it, God? And God's answer is, not to make my mom into God, I just want my dad to understand where she is on the uh, you know, echelon so he knows how he needs to behave when he gets home. But this idea, his answer to what's wrong with it is don't mix your seed, don't mix your cows, and don't mix your clothes. What is he saying? Don't mix it. Don't mix it. In other words, what's right with it is what he's asking you. And this is how specific he is. And if you're honest with yourself, think about how we approach most situations. Well, don't see anything wrong with it. This can't be wrong. Whereas God is, is, is emphasizing a principle here of separation that says, ask a different question. What's right with it? How is God's name honored? How is God's name lifted up? How is his kingdom advanced with this engagement? So instead of, as we come to this idea being set apart, this doesn't mean, and, and I want to be clear, you have the whole history of monks and monasteries, which was an unbiblical principle. If they're reading in scripture, it's very clear that we're supposed to be the light into the world. It's just as we engage in life, we often ask what's wrong, and what we're supposed to ask is what's right. We move now uh, in Leviticus 19, we go to 20 through 22. Tom, this is yours. This is the I call the interesting or specific to- problem for a specific time. Leviticus 19, 20 through 22. He's up on this odd issue, and then after you're done reading, if you could uh, articulate. Let's get it. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> no, we'll let you. You can just read it, and I'll I'll, I'll jump in on it. So what we see here is yet again, moral purity, it's a specific problem I put from a specific time. Here is a slave or indentured servant who is a female. She's engaged to another man, likely, um, but she's still serving. So she's engaged to another man. There's no implication that's the person who has her indentured servanthood. And oftentimes we see slavery in one light. We see it from 18 something to 1864. 63 or 1860 all the way from US slavery is what we see. And that's one picture of it. We read this and this is most likely an indentured servant, someone who possibly sold for a period of time to work for somebody and they are able to be redeemed, bought bought out or they finish their time in service. This person has not been redeemed, so the the person to whom she's engaged has not paid the ransom price. But she and an other man engage in immorality. Typically when that happens in a free situation, so if both man and woman are free, they are put to death for this. This is a capital crime. Here, the woman is not free. And so what is interesting is the man is given the weight of atonement. I want us to note something. This is not a case of rape. This is a case of two people coming together. This is not Um, This is not a a forced situation. This is what would occur. However, it's very specific. She is indentured to somebody. Now, we don't know who that is. Maybe it is her, the person she has sold time to, and they engage in an inappropriate relationship. Maybe it's somebody else that engages with her. But the concept that we understand and need to take away is one we notice. Why is this highlighted? Well, the punishment's different than normal. Uh, Usually it's death for both. And in this case, it's not. They're punished for it. And then the responsible party for this affair has to bear the weight of it. And the responsible party is the one who is free. And I want us to get a grip of this. It should remind us in our hearts and mind of the weight and responsibility we have as we engage our world. I have an illustration. I was in Guatemala, I think it was a week ago. Maybe it's been a week and a little bit. Specifically for one reason. Now, the benefit was I got to meet with another pastor and see how God is, is growing the work. But I had a deal with one of our pastors who has a difficulty, an argument, a tension with the guard on the property. It's a farm plus there's a church there. The pastor will make the assumption is saved, freed from sin the guard is religious. He's not saved. There's no fruit of salvation. There's no profession of salvation. Religious, yes. Saved, no. And you might say, oh, how, do you, how do you make that distinction? Well, if you go into... Uh, I actually heard a Mexican comedian last night making this joke. He says, you can have the biggest gangster in the world that's killing everyone on the streets, but if you make a joke about Jesus, they're going to be like, no, 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 no. You don't joke about the Lord. So religion is a big part of their culture. Part of their life in Guatemala, Catholicism's high. Um, some other when I say religions are high on the list. So, so the one gentleman Hidion is an unsafe man who is religious. So he's not anti the Bible. He's going to respect that. He's not anti God in any way, shape, form. or respects that, but he doesn't know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. He's not redeemed. Michael, the pastor, is saved. Now they're having attention. And I put a note here, and this is something I brought up to Michael, uh, and I mentioned, sadly, he didn't quite um, grasp or, or walk along with this. But Michael, in this situation, has a responsibility, right? He is the one who knows Christ as his Savior. He is the one that is freed from his sins. He is the one that should carry the weight of this issue. He's the one that should have acted better, Here in this illustration, though it doesn't relate to our culture at all, it does tell us something about the weight we feel as we engage our world. Uh, Sometimes I know for me, I'm tempted to act in kind. Have you Ever had that temptation? It comes out in us, right? Even some of the things I used last week, we talk about how how God orchestrated the idea of, of equality, and we don't go in the past to try to Re- rearrange the balances or think in the future, but instead we do what is right as God would have us do in that moment. Well, sometimes in different political arguments, people who are our opponent and we would look at and say, man, they are just the worst person in the world. They're vile, they're, they're horrible, and they act in a certain way. And then we begin to justify similar action. And I would throw out from this a principle where God says the freed person carries the weight for atonement, that as believers, as we walk into the world and we engage in our world, that we don't give ourselves permission to do as the world does, but instead recognize that God has given us a freedom and a right. And as we go and see people, and this is what's so critical, as locked in slavery of sin. And I'm not saying that makes them right. It does not. It doesn't, it doesn't make them and what they're pushing a correct thing. I'm just saying always respond biblically. Let your defense be on the foundation of God's word, not on what society says is okay. How would God view our response? How would God view how we're, and we are to push back. Look, I'm the first to tell you, I stood up in the pulpit on sanctity of life and I, I will tell somebody that abortion is murder. And I don't think that's an ugly thing to say. I think it's an honest thing to say. Now, how I go about communicating that may may be different than what other people are doing. I'm not going to act like other people act. I'm not going to graffiti buildings and throw windows and threaten people's lives. And we get tempted to do things like that, right? Because we get so upset because that's what happens. But that's not what God's called us to do. We're freed from sin and we're dealing with people enslaved in sin. And so let's act like... Christ Let's respond, recognizing something. One, it's our calling, but I would say it's also our responsibility. We have been freed from the bonds of sin, and so as we engage a culture entrapped in the bonds of sin, let's act and respond like those who have been freed. Let's carry that responsibility uh, forward. Uh, we're going to continue on uh, in Leviticus, so now it's 1923 through25. Bob, that's the one I signed you up for. Uh, on this one. So you're up. Uh, we'll just throw his name out whenever it's convenient to us. So Leviticus 19, 23 through 25, talking about fruit trees. So not because you're fruity or anything like that. It's it's no, you know, I just picked that on random. So it's all you.
1: Okay. Leviticus 19, 23 through 25. When you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you, it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all of its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit, that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God.
0: So, how many years do you wait before you take a bite of the apple? Five. Fourth year, what do you do with the fruit? goes all to God. One through three, what do you do with the fruit? Destroyed. It's, it's, it's uncircumcised. It's unholy, unedible. And what we see is that when you go to plant fruit crops, what is, what is something, if you have to wait five years, I'll buy, I bought berries recently, uh, about a year and a half ago, and they say, wait to eat berries off of it for two to three years. And, and my first thought is, why buy them? If you have to wait three years, why even buy this bush at all, right? Because I'm not what? Patient. But what we see here is patience, right? Um, We also see uh, dedication, right? When you give up that fourth year and it's holy to the Lord, and you've been waiting for four years, you've been patient. I can't even wait two or three for best practice. And you've been patient and then you set aside what is to God. You are honoring God with the what? First fruits. Now, it is also best horticultural practices. So why do they tell you to wait two to three years for your berries? I'm supposed to go in and actually pick the flowers off. Even on strawberry plants, you have to go in and pick the, pick the flowers off. You don't want them to go to fruit. You want to you give it time to develop. You want to get time to have the fruit. So it's, it's the best way to grow fruit crops. But the fourth year one, that's dedication. That's honoring God. And he rewards you with better yields in the end for them. for three years it's un- it's taking it's taking rid of it it's it's unclean unholy it's set aside because it needs that time right it needs to develop and so God is teaching them both growing principles that are going to help them develop good quality crops and then they're also setting aside the first fruits. It's not like, hey, get a good crop, and then by year seven or eight, when it's, you know, then go ahead and give God some of that one. It's that first time, the anticipation, the best in your mind, right? Because if you're growing an apple tree, and you've gotten to year four, and it's producing a ton of fruit, and it's like, this looks good. How hard is it not to take a bite of one of those apples? I'm not saying they had apples. Let's make it figs, whatever that's there. How hard is it not to to bite into it? It's difficult. What does setting aside the first fruit do? It shows you who has priority in your life. It's going to be dedicated to God. Most likely, uh, one of the priests is going to consume that in their family. You're going to be taking care of them as you are giving the first fruits To God. And so we're we're seeing, and it's tucked in the moral purity here, it's these practices that show that we give God preeminence, that we give God this place, number one, that we don't say to him, Well, I've worked for four years. It's mine. It recognizes who gives the fruit, right? Because who controls the harvest? God does. I always think of California and how many years have they been low on rain and then they're growing rock gardens now and doing all this stuff and now they have too much rain. They're just saying it's too wet, it's coming down. Who controls the weather? God does. It's one of the reasons why, and again, not to get into political issues and not to jump on one side or the other of something, but why does man think they can control the weather? I think we're God. Why does we have a whole media that's consumed with their ability to alter the climate of, you, of, of this world. Why do they say that? Because they want to negate who actually controls that climate. Now, I've, I've preached on it before. You see it in Hebrews. You see it in Colossians that God holds the world in his hands. And so from a Christian standpoint, when someone asks me about, can humanity flip the, flip the whole climate on this world? They cannot. They cannot do anything that God doesn't permit and actually orchestrate. Now, are we responsible for our world? Yes, we are. God has given us the dominion over it to use it correctly. So you're not talking about a person who's like, like, oh, I'm going to burn down the rainforest tomorrow. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But I want you to recognize what our world keeps pushing. And it's not that they care about the earth so much. That's the front end. What they care about is being God. And if we can change the climate, then who doesn't control it? God doesn't. So I always, for Christians, and I'll say this over and over God controls the weather and He controls our climate. He controls what we have. We are called by God. We're commanded by Him to be good stewards. Why do I engage in best practices? Why am I careful about pollution and things like that? Because God commanded us to be good stewards, not because I think I can change the climate at all, that I don't. I don't have my hands on that control. As a believer, it's important to recognize what it means when people say we can change climate. It means that God doesn't have control of it. Well, it's the same thing. If he selects something, if we can pick what we want, all of these things are to thwart who God is and who says what about whom. Who made you? God made you. How did God make us? Male and female when we can start picking it then we're telling god he did not make us so all of these things fall in there sometimes political things and science gets confusing uh, I listen to comedians when I can't sleep at night, and one comedian says, I just, I just don't understand. I, I hate science. Science, I don't get it. I just dump it off there. It doesn't matter. And he says, that ends a lot of arguments. No one argues with you anymore. And he's like, scientists can make up anything. They just pick a number. And, and he's just joking, right? But the reality is, when you think about it, some guy comes in a lab coat and says, well, this is what it is. You're like, well, he must know what he's talking about. He's wearing a lab coat. And that's why kids dress up, right? They come out and they're like, I know everything. I'm in a lab coat or I'm Superman, whatever it might be. But look at how we are as as a society playing God. Who controls the yield and the harvest? God does. When you give God the first fruits, when you give him year four, you're recognizing something, aren't you? Who puts the apples on your tree? Yeah, you cultivated it and you pruned it and you make sure there's spray copper so that all the bugs don't ill. Whatever it is that you have to do. Jason knows he's got an orchard in his yard, you know. Whatever it may be, we think we did it. What giving God first fruits does is it says, I know who puts fruit on the apples. Trees, not the apples. It's God. And it recognizes what he Is doing now. We go on to Leviticus nineteen twenty six to thirty four. That's you, Corey. You're up. um, Diving into the next one. Right,
1: twenty six to thirty four. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not shall not round off the hair on your temples, or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God.
0: And what is repeated again? We talked about it last week. What does he keep saying? I am the Lord your God. Why do you do this? Because he's your God. Sometimes, and we'll trace back briefly to that, what we talked about that topic. Why is God saying you do these first and foremost because he is God? When God asks us to do something, we don't question why. Why is that? Because it's perfectly fine for him to say, do this because I'm God. Now here, we're jumping in and we'll see a lot of them. The the basic premise is this, don't be like the nations around you. What were they doing? Eating blood, right? That was often part of idolatrous worship. We know from the commands before, what do they tell them about all those animals? Make sure you don't sacrifice an animal to be eaten unless it's going to be a peace offering. Don't go sacrificing in your fields. If you find a certain animal, you can eat it, but you have to be uh, separate for a day because you might have ate some blood with it. There's a host of these commands. They would engage in idolatrous worship and they would drink the blood. It's one of the things that pagans would do. If you read, and I enjoy reading about the West, the Native American people, they would eat. What is one of their favorite things from a buffalo? They would cut the tongue out and eat it there, raw, blood and all. It's something that pagan cultures actually do. You can watch through that. God says to Israel, don't eat the blood. Don't engage in what would be considered idolatrous worship. Don't look for signs somewhere else. How many people are staring at the stars, seeking guidance from the stars? Who do we get our guidance from? What is, what is God telling Israel? Where do you get guidance? Him. That's it. Don't try someone else. You're not, you're not testing who, who else might give you a sign. And so you're not going to look for that. Don't engage in hair trimming that replicates the world and that was done in idolatrous worship. Some people have taken this, and they've run with it. I mean, there's people that from, I was actually in line with a bunch of people coming from Israel, and there was some Jews there that had the, the long hair on the side, and I could tell it wasn't their real hair. Like, it goes with the hat and hangs down, and, and because they're going to keep it, because they, they, they're the trimmings. But then there's a whole, when I was growing up, my parents put me in schools where, where you couldn't have your hair get close to your ears. I mean, you had to just, just shave the thing off completely. I still remember having a principal, and it looked like you had three inches, because so, if hair would touch your ears, you would be, you know... Worshipping the cults, I guess he was just come from Woodstock. They thought. I don't know how they how that worked out. But so I'm just saying, on both sides of the spectrum, people have dove into it. Here's the reality: Why did God give the specifications about how they trimmed their hair? Because people would cut their hair in a certain way for certain types of worship. Whether that was shaving it off, whether there was cutting in a certain way. And so as we dive into what he's saying here. We're not to run rampant with, well, this is the new hair code. This is the new dress code. This is, this was distinguishing Israel from everyone else. And so he would say, don't cut and mark the body. Because when people worship Baal, 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 that's what it is. I call it Baal. And I had this guy preach at a conference and I know his name. I won't say it. And he spent like three minutes saying, it's not Baal, it's Baal. And I'm like, The rest of the sermon, I'm like, it's bail. I don't care what you say. I'm going to call it bail. That's what we do in the South. You go and do what you do in California, but we call it Baal. And if you want me to make it louder or longer, it's Baal, but I'm not going to do Baal at all. So he lost me. That was all I heard in that sermon. It was Al Mohler, by the way, just in case you want to know. He lives in the South. He should know better. But uh, sometimes I think people are just trying to be pretentious when they do it. That was my takeaway. I didn't listen to him at all. So um, it's Baal to me. But when you do Baal worship, what do they do? We had the comparison, right? I think it's Elisha. It was Elijah. I get those two mixed up all the time. It was Elijah, right? And what did they they do? They were cutting them. They were bleeding out to the point of fainting. How much blood do you have to lose to get to that point? Heat and bleeding yourself. So what is God saying? Don't cut and mark your body in this idolatrous worship. And then you give your daughters in cult prostitution. Now we instantly will react to that, right? What father is going to give their daughter over to prostitution? And it just, we see it in the trade of prostitution. The reality is, is when you translate that word in Hebrew, it means holy girls. Cult prostitution, they were considered elite. They were used in worship. This was, this wasn't, this was not something that people looked down upon. This is something that, why wouldn't you want your daughter to attain to that? And what's God saying? Don't have your daughters be holy girls for the pagans. Don't engage in this pagan practice. And think about how crass religion is, and then think about how crass a lot of religions are. They turned worship into immorality, and the basis sort of immorality, into the most abusive type of relationship. Because who are the cult prostitutes? And think about that, Fathers, don't give your what? Daughters, not their wives, their daughters. Who are they giving to prostitution? Young girls. Yes, exactly. So it's, it's the abuse of children woven into it, turning it into something that's lifted up. And think about our culture. Do we not sacrifice the youth on the altar of our immorality and our perversion? Look at the world around there. What is it? They're wanting the seven-year-olds to transition. What are they sacrificing? Children on the altar of their perversion. That's what they're doing, because that's makes it into something amazing. Isn't this wonderful? We did this. We destroyed this life. I still remember. Uh, I was uh, Trenton's doctor asked him if he was a boy or a girl. And uh, thankfully, he answered, boy, then, instead of playing around and saying, I'm a girl, you know, because you know what they would have done with it. I, had a, I don't know. Heather told me about it. And I said, I'm glad because I'm, I'm a bit quick-witted and it can get me in trouble. So sometimes it's great when I'm arguing. Um, I might win a lot of arguments with Heather. I lose in the end, as we all know. But the fact is, I might be sharp at the, at the onset. Because so I told Heather, I wouldn't have missed the D. I said, Get out of here. If you don't know what a boy or girl is, then what are you doing being a doctor? You're disqualified. Leave the room. And so it's probably good I wasn't in there. Uh, Heather gave him the mom response, which is much worse um, the icy, dead stare, and then they change him out, right? They're like, Ooh, well, we better find someone else. That's a mean mom. You know, that mom is, is in tune there. Um, on that line, whenever I go to get the kids uh, shots or vaccinations, I don't know which ones are not to be getting gotten or what ones are to be given. And so one time I went with Anison, and they're like, we're going to give them such and such shot. And Heather had told me no to that shot. And so I'm there and there's two nurses and they were nice. And they're like, well, you know, this is this is why you should get the shot. And I looked them in the eye and I said, look, there's nothing you can say that's going to change my mind. I have straight orders for my wife that this is a no. So you want to convince me, call her, she calls me. That's how this changes. And they both laughed and appreciated an obedient husband and didn't bother pushing it anymore. I think they had to, but they did literally, they just laughed and said, That's done. All that to say, right, this was an abuse. The prostitution was holy girls, and says, don't engage in that. Keep the Sabbath. What does it say? Follow God's way and follow God's rules. Don't look to false gods. And, and the end result is, if you don't, that the world or, or that you would be spat out from the land. In the end, the land will digress to depravity. And then I want you to think about applying that today. Think about worship Think about the practices of this world. What is condoned behavior? What is promoted behavior? What is prescribed behavior today? What has the world considered to be normative? You read some of the things up here and you think, I would never do that. And I want you to realize something. The world did that. Making your daughter a holy girl was what they did. This is the height of. Of achievement in some scenarios, religious achievement. And then we have to ask ourselves, what do we condone of the world? How have we allowed the pollution of the world to influence our worship and our behavior and our our response to things? How have we digressed from that? We'll carry on Leviticus now nineteen, thirty-five through thirty-seven, Thermogene has that one. Thirty-five through thirty-seven. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights, an honest ephah and an honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Keep all my decrees and all my laws and follow them. I am the Lord. It ends. And and what I love about it is, is it talks about the idea, what kind of weight and measure are you supposed to have? What does it say? Honest. So, Make sure your business practices, your economy functions by a correct scale. You're not here to take advantage of the customer or the situation. Could you imagine if our world functioned like that? My most hated quote I get from any contractor is, this is what the market allows. And I'll respond, I don't care what the market allows. What can you do it for? What, what's possible? What's possible? Well, this is what the market charges. The whole idea of your mechanic, right? Whenever a mechanic says to me, now don't worry, the government's put restrictions that we can only charge four and a half hours for this job. And I'm like, yeah, it takes you a half hour and you charge four hours more. And if it went more than that, you'd find something else that you could bill me for. I just want to know what it takes to fix it. What is involved in it? And I'm not saying it's dishonest. I'm saying how quickly we can set a standard that's different. When we engage in business, we think, what can I get away with? Not what is fair business? Isn't that a difference in how you approach economy? You're not here to take advantage of the customer situation, but instead, weigh and evaluate goods and payments with the known balance and standard. Rewind back to what we talked about with how we are to approach people and that idea of equality and the idea of dealing with them in righteousness. Don't defer to the poor and don't give special treatment to the rich, but instead, as you come to a situation with justice, do what is right in that situation. You're not to balance the scales. Economy in the economics of it, what could be tempting? Well, They've had a bumper crop this year. I think their ethos should weigh a little bit more. They should give a little bit more. Why not? They've had a good year. Why shouldn't I have a good year from this? I should get a little. You see how quickly we can justify an alteration? It's not going to hurt them. They had a great year. No, what God says is make sure that the weight is the weight. If you're trading gold by weight, then the scale is set to a certain balance, and that's what it will stay at. You keep things at a standard and a known balance. Why? What does he say at the end? And I love this. Verse 37 ends with what phrase? I am the Lord. Why do you do business right? Why don't you cheat? Let me make it because it's always, it's always quick to, to make the business person the bad person. You're an employee. Why don't you cheat and be lazy? Why wouldn't you slack off even though you can because the boss isn't around or they don't care? Why do you do a a full day's work for a full day's pay? Because you represent the Lord. Why? He's the Lord. And he's to be honored in our dealings. When we work and we work for a check and we've agreed to that, we work with diligence. When we pay people for what we're going to get, we pay them with diligence. It doesn't mean that we go in and say, hey, Go ahead and cheat me the other way. God asks for justice and rightness. You do business right. You don't lie and cheat in business. And that goes from one end of the business to the next, from the CEO to the person that loads the trucks, no matter what your job is, you don't cheat at it. You do what's right. Why? As a believer, you represent the Lord in your work. So do it right. Now we move to chapter 20. And, and what's going to happen is, and we'll read bigger chunks here. Uh, Tom, you're up first with uh, 21 through 8. And we're going to see here um, something I want you to realize. There are penalties for religious and moral deviation. Why? And I said this already once, because without penalty, what God said would only be suggestions. A principle that is well worth applying to all components of life. You want to know why? Why? People continue in crime because they get away with it. Because you're told not to do it, but you don't pay the price. You want to know why kids oftentimes don't obey besides just being rebellious little sinners? Because there's no consequences. When there are rules with no consequences, you're making suggestions. And I would say that those suggestions have less weight than a normal suggestion because everyone knows they don't have to listen. So God in 20 is now saying... I've given you a lot of rules, and I've showed some consequences. Now he's going to lay them on a lot heavier. So, Tom, if you can read 20 verses 1 through 8.
2: And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Again thou shalt say to the children of Israel, Whosoever he be of the children of Israel, or of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, that giveth any of his seed unto Moloch, he shall surely be put to death, the people of the land shall stone him with stones. And I will set my face against that man, and I will cut him off from among the people, because he hath given his seed to Moloch to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do any way hide their eyes from the man that has given his seed unto Moloch, and not kill him, then I will set my face against that man and against his family and will cut them off and all that go a-whoring after him to, to commit whoredoms with Moloch from among the people. In the soul that turns after such as familiar spirits and after wizards, To go whoring after them, I will set my face against that soul, and I will cut them off from among the people. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I I am the Lord your God. And And ye shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctifies you.
0: So we start off here with punishments for deviation in religion, sacrificing children to Molech. What do you get when you sacrifice your child to Molech? What are they supposed to do? Stone you. If the punishment is not enacted, God sets his face against the clan and the people. They get cut off. They're dead to him. In other words, God says you kill those who sacrifice children. And if you don't do the punishment that God has dictated, then God says, I've cut you off from me. I'm going to enact the punishment on you for not holding up my law and keeping it straight. It goes on. It says that God is turning to Medians, seeking spiritual guidance from pagans. What happens to you? You're cut off from? The people and from God. You're cut off by God and you're cut off from the people because you could go seek help from some median and no one else know about it. So God says, good, do you think you're going to get away with that? Just like if you're sacrificing, member in the woods, if you were eating meat in the woods, sacrificing and no one else would see you, God said, I'm going to cut you off. And here he tells you, you think you're doing something secret? I'm going to be the one that will cut you off. And I put here, what's the why of verses 1 through 8? God is serious about following his law. Be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Why do you act in holiness? Because God is your Lord. He is, he is Yahweh. You are not. Our calling is a high calling, and the failure to be and act as he commands comes with Consequences, right? There is a weight behind it. Otherwise, they would just be suggestions. Now, we're kind of running short on time, so I'm going to move through the last ones kind of quickly. So you'll go ahead and read these on your own to kind of catch up. I'm going to explain what 9 through 21 have in it, and I'll dive into the end so we can just see that and then take time to read it when you get home. But 29 through 21 deals with this disrespecting parents. What do you get? Death. Sexual deviation, you get punishment. If you have adultery, incense, homosexuality, or bestiality, you get death. Then there's crimes that are committed that aren't punished by humanity, but the consequences come from God. If sisters are cohabiting and intercourse during menstrual cycle, God says, I'm going to cut you off. If you co-inhabit or or sleep with your aunt or sister-in-law, he says, I'll make sure you're childless. It's not going to be Possible to overcome that. Why? Again, God is serious about his law. And I hope we see something in 20 is the weight of God's law. And the idea is this I, and this is God speaking, I am serious about this. And he makes clear that there is clear and consistent follow through from him. I wrote this down we must take his word seriously. And we must seriously remember that we're not to change the seriousness of his word. And what am I trying to say? God doesn't want his word tampered with. That when God gives a law, he means it. We're in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. We're about to dive into this Sunday. We're going to deal with um, God not sparing the angels who engaged in immorality. This is before the flood. God did not spare the world, and in their debased, perverse, wickedness that they lived in, but does rescue Noah. And then it goes to a society. God does not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, breaking his law, but does rescue Lot, who isn't overly helpful or useful to God, but is redeemed. And the New Testament tells us that while not exonerating him at all and still pointing to the fact that he was a very useless believer, God still rescued him. But God shows in Peter, Peter uses the Old Testament, uh, New Testament illustrations to show something God is serious about his word. If he says to do this, he means it. And we as believers are not given permission to undermine the seriousness of God's word. You have a teacher that undermines that. You have someone who preaches that and there's a host of them in there. Just walk away from that person. That person is walking a very dangerous line. They are a false teacher. That's, that's what the Bible calls them. And God is very clear from Old Testament to New Testament that he's serious about fulfilling his commandments. If you don't stone the person that sacrifices their children, God will take care of you and them. In the New Testament, what does it say about them? That their destruction is over them. That their, and he used the word damnation is already upon them. One author, and I'll, I'll talk about it on Sunday, views that eternal punishment or or being damned for all eternity as like an executioner. It's personified. And the idea is that it's just waiting to act when God says to act. It's not asleep. It's alert and ready. And that's what you're seeing in Leviticus here. And I hope you can see how Scripture ties together. God is serious in Leviticus. God is still serious when he gets to 2 Peter. And by the way, you get into Revelations and he says, I'm going to take hell and cost it in the lake of fire. God says, I'm going to punish and I'm going to judge. He's not changed his mind ever. God is serious about his law. What follows in 22 through 27 is yet the final call to being separate from the world, to be set apart as God's children. If you read it, you're going to hear this. Be holy and be separate. Let me read verse 26, because it's worth hearing multiple times. And ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have severed you from other people, that you should be mine. What does the word severed bring to mind? It's cut off, but it's not this gentle but you're also, I've cut you out of the world. I've severed. When you sever something, have you ever severed, someone severs their arm, what do you think happened? They cut it off. And the idea is this, I have cut you out of the world, he's saying. The closing charge then of 27 comes in, and he, he reiterates, and a man, also a woman that hath a familiar spirit, or that as a wizard shall surely be put to death, they shall stone them with stones, their blood shall be upon them. Why in the world at the end of all this he reminds you of people engaged in false worship? Because that is the pinnacle of it, right? Idolatry, not being set apart. I've set you apart, I've cut you out of the world, don't you dare chase back in to the religion of the world. The weight of worship and guidance, where does it come from? And the answer is, only God. Moral purity is summed up in understanding to whom we are accountable, and it's God. To whom do we worship? God. Who do we obey? God. For what reason? God. Same answer. That's the whole point. You do all of this because who he is, not for what you get, not for what you gain, not because you think it's going to be better or worse. You obey him because he's God. And that is the allegiance, sadly, that is often lacking in our world today is understanding we obey God because he's God. Now, will you be blessed eternally? Well, of course you will. God says you will, but you obey him because he is God. We'll be dismissed, Eight fifteen 15 uh, Next week, we'll be diving into 21 and 22, which we'll be talking about the priests and their qualifications bouncing back to what was all the offerings before in verses 8 through 10. And then we'll look at the feast and move to this idea of faithfulness as we work through Leviticus.